Deadbeat Scroll by Mark Coggins is slick, sardonic, and suspenseful. Everything a great thriller should be, says New York Times bestselling author Lee Child. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 16 El Sabarbe Surprise Kim's friend Tuyan lived in a residence hotel on Turk Street called the Sabarbe Residence. It sounded Spanish to me, so maybe it should have been called El Sabarbe. Two men sat with their backs to the wall by the entrance, sharing swigs from a jumbo bottle of country club malt liquor. In the parlance of the Tenderloin neighborhood where the hotel was located, they were pulling a 40-ounce holiday. How's it going? I said as I went past them to the door. Fuck you, said the one closest to me, a young guy in a baseball cap covered by a hoodie. Yeah, fuck you, added his friend, whose over-the-ear headphones didn't prevent him from hearing and participating in the exchange. We should do this more often, I said as I opened the front door. The lobby was surprisingly large, but most of the cracked mosaic floor was given over to bits of orange peel, peanut shells, and flattened cigarette butts. The only furnishings were three wobbly aluminum tables surrounded by equally wobbly lawn chairs whose turquoise webbing dangled off their frames like streamers. Sprinkler pipes crisscrossed the ceiling, crowding superannuated ceiling fans whose blades barely cleared the plumbing. Three pendant lamps with chipped glass shades illuminated the reception counter along the back wall. The guy behind the counter was big and bald, and had a monstrous goatee the size and shape of a whisk broom. He was hunched in a chair, a game controller clutched to his ample belly, while he battled the Zytrons from Zortar, or whatever the aliens in the game were called, on a computer that was out of my view. What wasn't obscured were the grating ping-ping zips emanating from the titanic struggle. I considered sneaking past him to the stairwell I had spotted on the left, but there was a sign on the wall stating, All guests must sign in. Excuse me, I'm here to see Tu Yun Do. He gave me the briefest of glances. Knock yourself out. Don't I need to sign in? He looked up again, clearly annoyed. Consider yourself signed. I gave him a nod he didn't see and walked towards the stairwell. Halfway there, I heard an explosion from the computer followed by a curse. Now look what you made me do. The stairwell smelled of bleach with an undertone of puke, trying very hard to become an overtone. The stair treads were covered with the same cracked mosaic from the lobby and were festooned with the same potpourri of trash but the risers, balusters, and grimy metal handrailings were painted fire engine red. For variety, I guessed. Tuyan's room, I knew from the card Kim had given me, was on the third floor, number 303. It didn't take long to establish that the door was locked and no one was answering. While the building was old and poorly maintained, its bones were good. The door was solid core, and there was both a knob and a deadbolt lock. 
I wouldn't be kicking my way in, and with my lockpick sitting in the glove box of my Galaxy 500 in Palm Springs, I wouldn't be flim-flamming my way in either. I briefly considered quizzing the neighbors about Tuyin's comings and goings, but decided that was just nibbling around the edges. I needed to pry the game controller out of the desk clerk's hands and get him to unlock the door. I drifted down the vomity staircase and planted myself in front of the reception counter. The incessant laser cannon noises from the computer told me the battle for Zytor was still in full swing. Tuyin's not answering. This time he didn't even bother looking up. What do you want me to do? Lay an egg? Interesting. I hear it's correlated with excessive screen time. What? Your egg problem comes from computer games. He slammed the controller down and stood, ejecting the wheeled chair behind him. If she's not in, then you'll need to come back later. That's how it works. Her parents are worried about her. He gave me an oily grin, and I realized for the first time he had braces. If he was concerned about his appearance, I had several makeover tips that should have had a higher priority. Let me guess, he said. They're worried their little girl is a cock holster. That's not nice. I'm not paid to be nice. I'm paid to run the front desk at this low-life Hilton, and she is one of the lowest. I'm always getting complaints about Johns in her room. What if one of those Johns hurt her? We should go up and see if she's all right. What if you are one of her Johns? I already told you. Her parents hired me. I'm a private investigator. Yeah, right. California requires private investigators to carry a copy of their license and a special photo ID. I fished both cards out of my wallet and passed them over. See for yourself. He glanced at them briefly, then passed them back. So what? That doesn't prove you're working for her parents. You probably have some other hustle going, collecting on a loan or chasing her for a bail bond. That's fine, but I'm under no obligation to help you. When was the last time you saw her? He shrugged. It's been a while, but I worked a day shift. She's a night crawler. I wouldn't expect to see her each and every day. Look, all I'm asking is that you go up with me and scope out her room. If she's not there, fine, I'm out of your hair. If she is there, I won't make it difficult. I'll just give her my card and ask her to get in touch on her own time. You left out the possibility you seem so worried about. If she's not there and can't answer, then the sooner we find out, the better. Fuck me, he said, and reached to pull a rolling metal shutter down across the counter opening. He emerged from a side door a moment later, carrying a big ring of keys. I bet you a fiver we walk in on her giving some dude a blowjob. Don't sell yourself short. No way anyone could sneak past you to her room. You should do open mic at the Elks Lodge. We trudged back up to the third floor, the keys on his ring jangling with each galumping step he took. At Tuyin's room, he pounded on the door and called her name. When no one answered, he rattled the knob and shouted into the door jam. It's Dave. I'm coming in. If you've got a client in there, you better tell him to pull up his pants. When there was still no answer, he shoved a key into the deadbolt and snicked it back. 
Then he used the key on the knob lock and pushed the door open. It swung in a creaking arc to the interior wall, where it banged against the plaster. I could tell immediately something was wrong. There was a smell in the air. It wasn't as strong as a smell at the Russell Street house, but the odor still screamed death and decay to my lizard brain. Dave noticed it too, and he produced a rasping noise halfway between a grunt and a throat clearing. No amount of that was going to make a difference, though. I pushed past him into the main room. A double bed took up most of the space, and a small table and a TV on a trolley cart consumed nearly all the rest. The bed was neatly made, and a stuffed panda in a bow tie slouched against the headboard. His constipated eyes looked vaguely sad. There was nothing for us here, so I pulled open one of the two doors that led off the room. Behind it was a shoebox of a kitchen with a dinky four-burner range and a half-pint refrigerator. As I stepped onto the buckled linoleum floor, the compressor on the refrigerator kicked in, prompting Dave to gasp behind me. Jesus, this is creeping me out. Stay tuned, Dave. Stay tuned. I maneuvered around him to get to the second door, which opened on a bathroom straight from the 1940s. There was a cracked pedestal sink, a toilet with a warped wooden lid, and aquamarine tiling on every vertical surface. In contrast to the dazzling walls, the floor tiles were a sterile black-and-white honeycomb, which made the single drop of blood in the middle of the floor stand out all the more dramatically. Dave made a new noise, a strangled gurgle. The only place left to look was behind the vinyl curtain that encircled the bathtub. I swept it aside and peered into the tub. There, like sardines in a can, were two dead Asian women. The older was dressed in a red chingsam dress with a mandarin collar. Her hair was styled in a severe bob, with long bangs slacked to her head like a 1920s football helmet. Her makeup was almost operatic in its extravagance. The younger woman was curvy, attractive, and dressed in a cotton t-shirt and shorts, possibly something she slept in. Her feet were bare, and her head was turned to the side. I could see that she'd been shot at the base of the skull. It had to be Tu Yun Do. I wasn't quite as certain about the identity of the older woman, but I had a pretty good idea. Dave had been silent while I took all this in, but now he called attention to himself with a bang when his head hit the tiled wall as he slumped to the ground. He had fainted. I laid him out on the floor, propping his feet on the tub to get the blood flowing in the right direction, then pulled out my phone to dial Kittredge. The lieutenant didn't waste any time with a greeting, assuming I was calling to pester him about the ballistics test. Cool your jets, Reardon. I just called in this slug. With the current backlog, it's going to take at least two days. That's what I figured. But I got a couple more to add to the order. He hesitated. For all his other faults, Kittredge wasn't stupid. You're not talking about more from the sidewalk in front of your apartment, are you? No, I'm not. These are in the brain pans of Mrs. Kong Shang Chai and an employee of hers from Golden Fingers.
You have been listening to The Deadbeat Scroll, a book the New York Journal of Books described as a glorious potpourri of violence, black humor, sex, and a hunt for a lost manuscript. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com.